Zach. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, no problem. I appreciate you taking the time to share your story, you know? Always, yes. All right. So, Zach, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Tell us where you're from originally. Okay, so I grew up in a, um, a small town named Brooklawn, and that's in Camden County in New Jersey. Um, very, very small community. Um, I was raised by two parents who were together. Um, I had a pretty normal childhood, what you would call like your American dream kind of childhood. Um, I went to private school. Um, my dad had a great career. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, was a very good mom. I would say she was born to be a mom and probably nothing else, you know. Um, it was a good childhood. Um, I had two brothers and a sister, so there was four of us. So even though my dad made good money uh, sending four kids to private school, you know, athletics, things, it, you know, so did they live paycheck to paycheck? No. But was there a lot of extra wealth flying around? Probably not, you know. Um, but my parents were supportive. Um, and they were good parents, I will say that. Um, as human beings, my parents were pretty flawed, you know. And um, looking back on it, when you grow older and you start to look at your parents as just humans instead of your parents, it's a big deal. Um, and you start to recognize those flaws and, and the things that happened. Um, but I was a fairly normal kid. I was really social. Um, I was the firstborn, so I was kind of flourished in gifts and love for, you know what I mean, a lot of the time. I, um, I was pretty athletic growing up. Uh, baseball, football, basketball, that kind of stuff. Um, but I remember as a kid getting picked on a lot. I was picked on a lot, mostly for weight or whatever it was at the time. And that was pretty hard for me because I liked people and I wanted nothing more than to be friends with people and know people. But I couldn't understand why these people didn't want the same from me. Um, so I would say grammar school was, was pretty hard coming up, you know, getting bullied a lot and things like that. Wasn't until high school <laughs> where I kind of flowered or bloomed or whatever you want to say and kind of honed that social ability I had. And, um, and I was popular or whatever you want to call it and had a, a good time after that and um, went to Gloucester Catholic, which is pretty prestigious for baseball and the things that, you know, I wanted. Did not take school seriously, unfortunately. Um, I had it in my head, um, which a lot of teachers and people around me always told me I was too smart for my own good, which was things I thought people just said, you know. And as I got older, I realized, no, they were probably right. I probably was. And I probably should have listened more. Um, but I had the idea in my head that I could do the base minimum and do whatever I want. And I guarantee you I could still graduate because we were paying so much money for the schooling. It was good on them to, to graduate me. 
And it was a hypothesis in my head and, you know, I was so stubborn at the time that I pushed that as far as I could. And wouldn't you know it, I graduated, probably by the skin of my teeth, but, you know, uh, it wasn't until later on that I realized that the teachers probably were right. I probably was too smart for my own good. And it sounds egotistical when you say it, but I'm not coming from an egotistical place. I'm coming from a place of, hell, I should have listened to those people, you know? Because even if you're smarter than somebody or think you understand more, mostly people give opinions that are worth listening to once in a while. So I wish I took school a little bit more seriously sometimes because I was capable. Um, I guess you can sum up my childhood as like not living to potential a lot of times, kind of fulfilling those instant gratification needs and um, fun. I was all about fun. Um, in high school is when I really started to battle a lot of uh, a lot of demons and a lot of things that would affect me later on in life. I would say high school is when I started to find things in me that um, would permanently change the way I lived and the outcome of my life moving forward. Um, and to give some background, my father was an alcoholic, so I grew up with that. Um, he was sober, you know, when the kids were growing up and he you know, did a good job to keep us out of danger of those things, but you could say I was born in me, I guess, if you buy that kind of stuff, the whole gene stuff. Um, so I had it in me, those kind of tendencies, and I realized that at a young age, that I could get super focused on something and kind of harness it on it. And it could be good with some things, but it could be really, really bad with others. And uh, if I was going to do something, I was going to do it 150,000%. Even if it was really bad for me, I was going to do it. And I was going to know everything about it. And I was going to be able to tell people about it and just do it really, really well. And like I said, with some things, it comes in handy. With other things, uh, not, so, not so much. So my background was, you know, for the most part, growing up, um, it was a pretty normal childhood. And that's weird to say, but because um, you expect there to be more or trauma, you know, in the life that I live. But there really wasn't. It was a pretty, pretty normal background I have. You know, on paper, it looks like uh, baseball and apple pie. It really does. You know what I mean? So that's a little bit of the, the background and, and where I went through, you know. So everything was good and... Things changed a little bit. Yes. And uh, so what changed? Um, I, at a very young age, there was a void in my life that I, to this day, I don't think I understand. Um, through therapy and relationships and love and those kind of things. I think I understand it more. But I started to notice this void that I kept trying to fill with a lot of different things. Uh, love, sex, uh, material things, you name it. I tried to fill it with. Um, and this void became almost insidious in itself. It became a... Um, 
almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that the more that I threw in there, the bigger it became, the worse it became. And I also developed a lot of, um, I guess, self-hate at that time as well. Um, kind of like the question, that, what's wrong with me? Like, why, why do I have to feel like this? Why can't I just be, you know, why can everyone else just be like, well, whatever, things are just the way they are. Let's, you know, I couldn't, for some reason, I couldn't do that. I always had to know why. I always had to fix things. I always had to, you know, I had to be in control of things. And if I wasn't, um, I just didn't feel right. So there was no just like letting things happen for me for some reason. I just couldn't do it. And this void, while trying to fill that, um, you start to go into more drastic ways to fill it, you know? So things that might have worked before, you get used to and they just aren't filling the void as much. So you just keep throwing things in that void and hope to God something fills it to feel somewhat whole, you know? And I think a lot of issues came um, from parenting stuff. My, my mother was, um, still is, very hard to um, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of relate to emotionally. She's very, very hard. She doesn't like to get too close to people. Um, when we were young, it was all, Love, 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 you know, kids, kids. But as we got older and developed our own ideas and our own shape of personality, it became harder for her to kind of relate to us emotionally. So I think that had a lot to, to do with it. You know, um, the one person that you want to attach to emotionally or you want to go to at a young age, you're not able to do that. So you try to find that in other things and other people. I think I also based a lot of my happiness on my surroundings and people instead of directly in myself, directly producing my own happiness and being okay with me and trying to fill that happiness or that void with other things or people. Um, so it was, it was a difficult time to try to figure, you know, everyone goes through the whole figuring yourself out. Um, but I, I don't think I ever had to do that, unfortunately. I think I already knew who I was, and I think I was kind of terrified of it. You know, I don't think I liked what I saw a lot, a lot of characteristics that I didn't like, a lot of things that I just didn't want to deal with or didn't want. And I think that's a scary thing at a young age to know exactly who you are, to be so self-conscious that it's like, that's terrifying, man, because then, then what do I do? Now I know all these things about me that I really don't like, what do I do? And at 16, 17 years old, you don't, you don't know what to do. All you can do is go to your parents, but your parents, not exactly the easiest people to talk to emotionally or connect in that way. Um, mental illness was always a, a big issue in our family. My mom studied psychology, so it wasn't, wasn't easy. Um, and my father was, um, I don't want to call him a boomer, but a typical kind of manly man, you know, and you could talk to him, but it was hard to um, kind of express certain things. So it was hard to kind of know where to go. 
And by that time, I surrounded myself with some pretty nefarious things. So those were the outlets I had, and the results I got were to be expected. You know, you're feeling these emotional states with things that you probably shouldn't be, um, like alcohol, drugs, things like that. Um, and he asked what changed. Um, I would say about junior year um, of high school, I left athletics, just left. Didn't want to do it anymore. And I fell in love with music all over again, which is was like my first love. It's what I loved to do. It was always in my family. My uncle's a great musician, you know. And started playing in bands again and all those kind of things. But then along with that came the drugs. And the drugs came hard and fast. Um, especially when you have a bunch of kids with mommy and daddy's money running around with a lot of extra dough to spend. You know, drugs happen pretty fast. And um, I was able to do some good things with it. <laughs> you know, like experiment with hallucinogenics that expand your mind and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, part of that was fun and you know, kind of innocent. But while everyone was off kind of having fun and like experimenting, I noticed that I was using drugs in like a much different way. Like instead of having fun or, you know, expanding minds and whatnot, I realized that I was trying to fill something. I was taking this not because I wanted to, but because I needed to at that point. And that's when I realized that I was probably different from other people that um, drugs were probably going to be a mainstay in my life if I kept going. And again, the self-awareness thing, you know, that's why I never blamed anybody or said I didn't know what I was getting into. I, I did, you know, I, I did. So I think that as a whole is what kind of changed just the overall self-awareness. Um, also, things at home started to get particularly worse. Um, my dad had two knee replacements and, uh, he was an alcoholic, so he really never messed with drugs before. And at the time, that was the height of the pill epidemic, man. Just doctors were handing out painkillers. And, um, I remember they gave my dad a bunch of painkillers and, you know, I went, I even went to him and said, hey man, this is a different, you know, animal you're messing with. Like, this isn't alcohol, this isn't, you should, you should probably stay away from this or give him the mom or whatever, figure out something couple, you know, months into it, you start to see the, you know, the breakdowns, you start to see the symptoms, you start to see, oh, okay, dad's hooked on painkillers now, that's not good. Um, and along with it, the marriage started to deteriorate, you know. And from people who live with it, there, there's nothing worse than living in a home with two parents that should not be married. It, it's horrible. It's toxic. You know, because you have these two people that want nothing more than to be free from each other, but have to stay there either for financial reasons or kids or whatever you want to, you know. So it becomes, um, it becomes really, really toxic. And um, I started to use anything and everything I could as an escape from that, you know. I was never home you know, always traveling or going to see the next band or going on tour or whatever to get away from it, you know what I mean? And those are kind of like the big things that really started to shape that kind of time of my life into 
the spectrum that it would, you know, kind of become. So that's what, that's what changed, I guess you want to say, yeah. And so now this was this was around high school. Yeah. You're saying like your junior year, this is yeah. when everything started changing. Yeah, so I graduated two thousand six. So you figure somewhere around two thousand four, okay. two thousand five going into it. Yeah. And so what was the very first drug that you tried? Oh, man. Never forget it. Um, I mean, not counting your alcohol or your cigarettes, um, because cigarettes and alcohol would have been the, the first one. But if you want to go, like, narcotics, I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, my friend at the time, um, we were over at his house, and his parents were some pretty big hippie kind of potheads. And, you know, he stole a little bit of weed from his family. And I'll never forget going into the garage and I think he had a Coke can. I think we made like a, like a Coke hitter out of it. And it was funny. And, um, you know, very innocent, went back there, didn't know what we were doing, acting all cool like kids do. And the reason I'll never forget it is because people say you don't get high the first time. I, I got high the first time. And I remember feeling like a weight lifting. And like I said, I remember thinking to myself, I just want to feel like this all the time. And also subconsciously knowing that's not a good thought. That's not, that's not a good thought, you know? And that was when things were like, well, if I could feel like this all the time, I want to do that. And with alcohol, um, I guess maybe because my dad was an alcoholic and watching it, I never understood how people got drunk every day or did that. It just wasn't my thing. I didn't like that. Um, not that I couldn't drink heavily. I did, but it just wasn't my thing. But when I saw drugs, it was like, well, that's different. And me being the smart kid I was, it was like, well, my dad was an alcoholic, so I'll just do drugs, you know, because me, I'm smart. You know, I'll just do that. Um, but, yeah, that was the first time... Um, I really experienced any kind of narcotic or drug or anything like that when it was still kind of innocent. But even then, like I said, I remember having that nefarious thought that like, I can do this all day, every day. And that started to slope down into other things. And yeah, but that was the first time I kind of came in contact with it, yeah. So now at its, at its peak, what was your drug of choice? So, um, I'm a heroin addict, and um, people still get upset that I refer to myself as that, um, but I am. I'm a heroin addict. Um, no matter how good I'm doing, no matter how sober I've been for how long, um, you give me a needle and heroin, and I'm off to the races again. It just is what it is. Um, heroin was my specific drug of choice. Um, although I was a speedballer, I was a Coke and heroin mixed up together, and off to the races, man, which is a super dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Um, but yeah, I, I, my drug of choice would have been heroin. I'm a heroin addict, yeah, for sure. And there was a gradual thing. I did the pill thing. I did the, you know, the whole nine yards. And at the time I was growing up, you know, pills were a really big thing. It was just hitting the market. You know, they were pushing it hard, you know, especially in Pennsylvania and Virginia. And so we were right in the middle of it. Um, and I remember pills were like everywhere, you know, uh, whether it be Xanax or painkillers or you name it. Um, it was just seemed like they were just dumping them everywhere, you know. So it was those first and then gradually moved on to heroin eventually um, in the later times. 
but yeah, heroin was my was my drug of choice. Yeah, sure. Now you had mentioned that they had prescribers that had pain pills. Yes. After his knee replacements, mm-hmm. and you you were kind of explaining to him like, "Hey, man, yeah. you don't want to play with this." Yeah. So did you know about yeah. those at that time? Oh, that sure. You already experimented. Oh yeah, absolutely. You couldn't you couldn't not. That was the weird thing. If you were if you were involved in drugs around my time, chances are you were around it or messed with it. They were everywhere. Um, and there wasn't the stigma like there is now, like the commercials or the, I remember a lot of thought in people's head were, well, they came from a doctor, how bad could they be, right? I remember that thought being said a lot, especially with like the elitist, like clean upper rich kids, you know, well, they came from a doctor, they came from my mom's medicine cabinet, how bad could it be, right? I remember that being said like a lot. So they were around a lot. Um, was I using them as heavy at the time? No, but I experimented with them enough to know and was around a lot of older kids who were to know that like, you definitely have a history of addiction. This is not gonna be a good thing. Like this is just not gonna be a good thing. And at the time, um, I believe as it, progressed for the next couple of months, he was actually going to like other doctors and skipping insurance to make sure he could have more. So he really learned at a fast pace and there was no fail safes to stop this at the time because it wasn't like it is now. Like when you think of this now, you think, well, you can't do that. Pharmacy's not gonna, back then he could, man. Nobody asked questions, nobody, you know, there wasn't this big thing about it. So it was pretty readily easy to get a hand, you know, a hold of. So yeah, I, I definitely knew at the time and, and I warned him at the time. Um, but again, you heard that, it, my doctor told me. And I, I swear, it, it must've been mentioned a million times in my life at the time. That was like the go-to, my, my doctor, he, he said, it's fine. So I'll just keep taking these. And I think with my dad, um, he mentioned that it made him feel young again, that he could do things that he could, that was the addicting feeling for him. He was always a handyman, he liked to build, he, customized the house himself, molding, cabinets, you name it. You know, he was good at, at handiwork. And as he got older, he couldn't really do it anymore. And he said when he took the pills, made him feel young again, and he was hooked. And um, because of the addictive nature, it, it went pretty fast, it went pretty fast. So yeah, I, I tried to warn him, but just like with any addict or any person, you usually got to find out yourself. You know, my dad always says life teaches you your lessons, and and it does, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, at the time, I I did know what to expect from it, and um, and I genuinely think he did not. Like he really did buy into the whole. Well, my doctor said it's it's fine. Like it's not a big deal. Um, so I don't. I genuinely don't think he knew the consequences of what he was doing until it was it was too late. You know. So that's interesting. So, um, because they were around like that at the yeah. time, yeah, yeah. They were, they were heavy. Everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> so, for yourself, um, did you know that you were becoming addicted to them? Like, how did you start to use them more and more? Right. I don't think, uh, in hindsight, I think a lot of people like to say they did. But I call BS on that. I don't think anybody really does. You don't really notice it's happening no matter how many people tell you or what you know. You don't really notice it's happening until it's already happened. So 
especially when we started messing with it, nobody told us what addiction was or what withdrawals were. No, nobody, we didn't really know any of that stuff. Um, I just remember uh, one day waking up and my knees hurt terribly bad. My stomach hurt, everything hurt. I was anxious, my skin was hot, sweating. I was like, I must be sick, I, I must be sick. And when I used that day, it went away. So I'm thinking, okay, well that's a little weird. And as you start to figure it out, you go, oh no, I'm sick because I'm not taking the drugs. Just flat out, that's what's happening here. And you start to put two and two together, but it's too late at that point, you know? It's just too, it's already going, it's already happening, you know? So in the moment, um, you don't really realize it. And I think it's also a part you don't want to realize it. Like you're just kind of like, no, I'm having fun. I'm just gonna put this off to the side. Um, I compare it to a credit card a lot for people. You can spend that credit card. You can spend that money all you want, but that bill is gonna come due. Like that bill's coming in due, you know? And you had all that fun with it and you did all that stuff. Now it's time to pay the bill. And that's how I can describe it best as far as addiction goes. You're spending, spending, spending on your credit card, but when that bill comes, all those good feelings, they're, they're coming right back, man. They're coming back because you can't keep that. And the first time you experience withdrawal is a pretty scary thing because especially if you don't know what to expect. Um, I tell people a lot, you know, they always say, well, if it feels like the flu, why don't you just like deal with it? And I said, listen, man, if you had the flu, if you were feeling really bad and you could snap your fingers and be gone, you'd do it, you'd do it. You're a human being, you don't wanna feel like that. And that's the same thing with withdrawals. In your head, you know, your mind is controlling that and that self-preservation kicks in and your body goes, you know you can just get rid of this, go get rid of this, and you do. You know, it's almost like an automated kind of thing and that's what it becomes, it becomes not so much I'm doing the drugs to get high, it's I'm now doing drugs to be normal, like to be flatline normal. And that is a weird feeling because at that point, it's so, it's just so depressing and so demeaning because you're, all these things that you're doing and all these things you're, money you're using and schemes to get money, all this stuff, you're just doing it to feel normal. And it's so weird when you get to that point. All the fun gets sucked out of it, all the, there's just nothing left but the drug. And it's a weird thing. But um, as far as knowing, no, no. I think you, you don't realize it until it's already happened. Or it's a mixture of kind of blocking it in your head and just continuing on with what you're doing because that's what you want to do. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty crazy. That's an interesting way to put it. You're just doing it just to feel normal. That's it. I mean, it started that, out as fun and then now. That's really what it comes down to. And and most opiate addicts that would watch this or would be here and hear this, they'd be like, yep, that's what it comes down to. There's no getting high anymore. There's no, you know, it's literally I do this just to be normal, you know. And for people that never experienced it, withdrawals are a pretty terrible thing. Um you can't exactly die from withdrawals, um, certain ones. Um, 
you can die from symptoms like dehydration, things like that, sure. But the feeling of doom, of impending doom, and just the overall physical feeling is a really, really difficult thing to go through. And it's not something um, most people can push through on their own um, because the mental state you're in, the physical state you're in, you just don't have the wherewithal to do it most of the time. Not because you can't get through it, not because you usually need help. Because like I said, at that point, if you're that addicted going through withdrawals, mentally you're probably beat up. If you have any spirituality left at all, you know, you're probably almost bankrupt there. And physically, you probably put your body through such hell at that point, you just don't have the wherewithal to, to do anything about it. So it, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to describe, and it's a weird thing to try to understand if you've never done it. And I could sit here and try to explain it to you, but when it comes down to it, nothing's gonna make sense unless you went through it. And it's, it's really hard to explain. Um, it's just, it becomes part of your everyday routine. It becomes a necessity. And if you don't have that, you'll do anything to get it, period. Like, you know what I mean? Nothing's gonna stop you from, from making sure that happens that day. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty crazy thing to, to deal with for sure. And um, not like it's like a club, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's hard to understand unless, you, unless you've been through it for sure, yeah. So how did the graduation from pills to heroin take place, and okay. do, do you remember the first time you did it? Were you scared? So actually, the first time I did heroin, um, I did unknowingly. <laughs> um, so I couldn't have been scared. I couldn't have been. Um, would I have been? You can sit here and act tough all you want, but sure, sure, I probably would have been. Yeah, it's, you're messing with a harder drug. You're messing with an unknown. Anytime a human's messing with an unknown, they, you know, usually pretty scared. Um, the first time I did heroin. Um, I snorted it, um, but I was told it was Oxycontin. Um, and oddly enough, the, the kids that I were dealing with, it literally just told me that not out of, you know, malice, but they didn't want us to know they were doing heroin. They were trying to hide it themselves. You know, they're good friends with us. And, you know, unknowingly I did it and he kind of looked at me like, oh shit, like cat's out of the bag now. You weren't supposed to do that. So he told me, he said, listen, man, uh, that was heroin. I was like, okay, I knew that tasted a little different. I knew that was a little different, okay. And I loved it. Um, it was like, um, the best analogy I have is you wake up one day and it's one of those days where nothing's going right. You're tired. You don't want to be out and about, you just wanna go home, you're not feeling that well. You come home in your cold, dark bedroom and your head, that moment your head hits your pillow. That's heroin, you know? And that feeling of just, oh, I don't have to carry this, I don't have to, like taking off a backpack, that kind of feeling was what I got from that and inside a little voice, you know, there was two of them. One was, you should run 
the absolute opposite way from this, and you and you know it. The other one was, remember that void? This can most definitely fill that void for a little bit. And I did not listen to the reasonable voice at all. And I knew, I knew inside my head that there was no turning back at that point, that from that point on, it was going to get bad. Like consciously knew it was going to get bad after that because I knew that there was no way I was going to give that up. There was just no way in hell I was going to give that up for anybody. Um, and I, I proved myself right. Um, but that was the first time I kind of came in contact with, with heroin for sure. And I was, um, I was probably, say, 20 at the time, maybe 21, somewhere around there. Uh, was was the first time I really touched it um, and started getting into it. Um, there was a period where after I did try for the first time, I tried to go back to the pills and just, you know, smoke weed and do the whole thing. Didn't work. You know, I was always like, no, there's that other thing. And, and I ran as Usain bolted all the way over to it, man, as fast as humanly possible and pretty quickly too. So, yeah, that was the first time I, I came in contact with heroin. And so when did you realize that, you know, you were like at your lowest point? When did you realize like, I need to make a change or you wanted to make a change? So there was a couple points. I mean, a lot of people say rock bottom. Um, I don't think I actually had a rock bottom. My rock bottom was dead for sure. I, I, I knew it in my head that my rock bottom was going to be dead, that no matter what I did, nothing was going to stop me from doing the drugs. That's just the kind of human being I was. But there were certain low points in my life that shook me even harder than that. Um, this one sucks, but um, I remember um, I remember coming home to visit my parents, and I. I my mom specifically, because my dad was out of the house at the time. They, they finally separated. I remember I came back um, from a binge for God knows how long. And I was using my mom's phone for something. I, I can't remember what. And she was actually Googling my name in the obituaries to see if I was dead. So when you see that, it kind of shakes you a little bit and goes, you actually see in real time how this is affecting other people. And the part of me that I wanted to embrace the good side of me, the social, the loving, compassionate side, really got rocked by that. Um, and it hurt pretty bad. Um, I think the other points um, would go along with the you know, rest of the story and things that I went through throughout the time. But that one specific time really stuck with me. Um, I also used with my father for a stretch of time, so that becomes a weird thing. Um, to this day, my dad isn't my dad. We have a relationship, but you really can't go back to the whole father-son thing. 
just doesn't work. You know, we tried, but it just doesn't work. Um, so you lose that. Drugs took that away from me. You know, we willingly gave it, you know. I always say that. I willingly gave it up, but it's hard. You know, so I have a friend, not a dad, and that's okay. You know, that, that's fine. Um, but points like that throughout your life, you know, kind of remind you what you're doing to people. Um, you know, my grandfather, who we were living with for, for a while during our addiction, you know, hopping back and forth, you know, my addiction indirectly killed my grandfather from stress, from stealing money, from, you know, he was too old at the time to be dealing with any of that. You know, I felt really guilty about that. Um, one of my best friends, um, who was like a brother to me, loved him dearly. Um, I showed him that world. You know, he didn't survive that world. Um, I knew he had no business in that world. I knew he couldn't hack it there. Um, but he had the he had the car, he had the money, you know. Um, so it's things like that that um, that kind of bring you down to reality. And um, other people do suffer from your decisions. Um, the addict suffers the most, they do. You know, I don't want to get anybody twisted. You know, your life is the one getting ruined. It might be upsetting for other people. Or, but anything people suffer, I've suffered, you know, and any addict suffers a lot. So that goes through a lot. But the decisions they make directly impact people on a totally different level. And when you start to see just the path of, like, destruction that you left. It starts to hit the part, whatever part of hum humanity you have left in you, it starts to hit that a little bit. And the person you should have became or want to become starts to yell out and say, like, look at this. You know, all this blood on your hands, all this dirt on your hands, you know? And you start to see that. And, you know, it, it changes things. You start to think if it was all worth it, you know? And then there's the, the normal things. You know, being homeless is degrading, you know? Takes all your self-respect, you know? You want to get humble? Go find dinner in a trash can. That'll humble you real quick, you know? I also had a really hard time when you're homeless, um, the fact that people can look through you, right through you, like you're not even human, you know? And that, you start to see the world in a real negative light and what people are capable of and all that kind of stuff. But being homeless and having people almost not consider you human is so degrading. Like it takes every ounce of self-respect you have for yourself and it just tosses it out. Cause you don't have a lot to begin with. Cause if you did, you wouldn't be doing this to yourself, you know? Um, but those things really hit. That's me. <laughs> yeah, just to get that off. Um, those things really 
hit in a different way and 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 kind of shake you a little bit. Yeah. So you mentioned. Um, so you were homeless for a while. Yes. How did how did you end up finally you know getting help and getting off the streets? How did that come about? Okay. Um, so I was homeless in the streets of Camden for, um, I guess, eight or nine years, somewhere around there. Um, at the time, not as like a badge of honor, but at the time, Camden was also, you know, the, the murder capital of the United States. It was not a, uh, an easy place to be by any stretch. Um, so it was rough out there. It was, uh, it was scary. It was scary. Um, so. How'd you, how'd you end up in Canada? Uh, I guess how every person does. Um, and this is how insidious drug addiction really is. Um, I really had the thought in my head that being in Camden, homeless, I was just closer to the drugs. Simple as that. And thinking on that now, looking back, oh man, I, I, I could have hooked myself in the face. I would have hit myself. But that's, that's the power that that can have over you if you have an addiction problem. So I started running in Camden and you know, let's say you're going twice a day to go. After a while, you realize, well, I could just stay here. I don't have to spend this money on gas or on the bus or this. I can just, I can just stay here. Everybody else does it. Why can't I do it? Next thing you know, you're four years deep in Camden. And time is meaningless. Days are meaningless. In and out of jail. And um, you realize you're stuck there. You know, you're just straight up stuck there. And um, as hard as, as it is to say, I would say I willingly put myself there. I chose that, which is even crazier. Because some, sometimes I really did have places to go, you know? <laughs> sometimes I really couldn't, you know, I could have gone somewhere. But I chose not to. And um, the... Um, I would say those were the darkest times of my life. Those were um, the things you have, the things you have to do to survive out there are bad. They're bad. And um, uh, you pay for them, man. You pay for them, you know. Um, in some way you pay for them, somehow. And uh, like I said, it robs you of any humanity because you can't have, there can't be a low bar. There can't be a, I wouldn't do that. It's whatever I have to do to stay alive and stay okay, that, that, that's what I'm gonna do. And um, it becomes a, um, a gambit of survival. It's basically what it becomes. And um, I remember for the first year, um, when I came home off the streets, I was still doing street stuff. You know, I would still sleep with a knife under my pillow. I would still sleep so my, 
you know, against the wall so nobody could come up behind me. I still, I did all these things. You know, I couldn't sleep in a bed for like a year. I slept on the floor because I was so used to sleeping on cardboard and concrete, you know. Um, certain things from jail stick with you for a very long time. Um, but after those times, I remember one day I met this pastor, this guy that was always out there, uh, always had a, a hat on, trucker hat, looked like a fisherman from the South or something. Pastor Greg, I'll, I'll never forget him. And uh, he said, I always see him, we always have these philosophical talks. And, you know, one day he asked me, he said, listen, man, you're educated. You're, what's, what's going on here? Like what? So I told him a story and talked and he said, listen, just do me a favor. Just go to the methadone clinic tomorrow. Just, just get help. Just see what happens. If you don't like it, you're already here anyway. Who cares, right? Who cares? And I remember thinking about it that night. I said, you know what? Screw it. Yeah, I'll go. Worst case scenario is to give me some drugs or something and I leave. Fine. Whatever. I'm just go back to what? Fine. I'll go. It turned out to save my life. Um, while I was there, I met a, na a man named Terry Collins, who was a counselor. Um, and that man, that man saved my life. Um, I owe a lot to that man. He's a good man. Um, he, uh, he took an interest in me for some reason. I don't know why. But um, I was in his uh, group with a bunch of other people. And I was still messing around at the time. You know, still getting high, but not as much, I guess. And um, he pulled me into the office one day, into his office, and he sat me down. And he was like, are you done, like, wasting my time and your time? And I remember being like, who the hell are you, bro? Like, you don't, you don't know me. You don't know what I... And he goes, I don't, I don't want to hear all that BS. I don't want to hear it. I was like, man, I remember thinking, like, screw you, dude. You know, and then he looked me dead in the eye and he said, have you even tried? And I remember getting so indignant with him. Like, who the hell? Yeah, try. Are you kidding me? I'm surviving. You've been out there lately. And I remember and he goes, dude, have you even tried? And he kept saying it, kept saying it. So I stood up, I slammed down, you know, I got all pissed, like I knew how to do, because I'm big, and it's the only thing I knew how to do, you know? And he looked at me, and for the final time, he grabbed my shoulder and he was like, are you ready to try? And it's like it clicked. And I was like, you know what? No, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't at all. Because I'm still using drugs. I'm still, I'm saying all this stuff isn't working, but I'm still taking hot. No, I haven't. You're right. 100% you are right. I have not tried at all. And um, I walked out of that office. I left that clinic that day. I called my mom. I said, you know, you don't owe me anything. Nothing at all. But I said, as your son... I'm asking you a favor. Can you come get me? Can I stay at the house while I clean up? 
She said no. But my sister, I guess convinced her, called her, you know. And she said, yes, you can come. And at the time, um, I was with a woman who was a <laughs> whole separate story. <laughs> no need to get into all that. But my mom was even nice enough to let her come while she was sobering up. And to her credit, she, she sobered up. And uh, that's how I got off the streets. And uh, I didn't look back. You know, I got lucky. I had people around me. Um, I started going to AA and NA a lot. Well, I met a wonderful human being named Nick, who was my sponsor for a long time, and he taught me a lot of, a lot of great things. And I was lucky. Um, to all the people that, you know, asked or sponsored that I've done, I, they all want some Gandhi kind of saying that I can give them how I did it. And I tell everybody the same thing. I didn't do Jack, dude. I just got lucky. I just got lucky. That's it. You know, if it wasn't me, it was somebody else. And if it wasn't him dying, it was me. I just got lucky. That's it. <laughs> I had a lot of other people do a lot of work for me and I came out alive. That's it, man. You know, there's no, there's no roadmap. There's no, I did this, you do this. It, it doesn't, none of that works. It's it just, you have to be willing. It's the only thing in life where to win, you have to completely and utterly give up. 100%. No fight left in you. Nothing. It's the only thing in life where it's good to tell somebody to give up and quit because it's the only way you're gonna move on. Because until you let go of all that, until you just surrender to whatever you wanna to surrender to, a God, a life, nature, whatever, until you do that, you're stuck and you're gonna stay there. <laughs> and um, I lost a lot of people, a lot of people. Some very, very close to me because of that life. And I had a, a lot of problems afterwards with, you know, why did he die and not me? You know, survivor's guilt. You know, why did, you know, it should have been me. You know, he could have done something with his life or he could have done this or she could have done that. Why me? You know, so I had to, to deal with that a lot too, you know. So it was... um. It was all by luck and somebody who really cared, somebody who, who did his job very well and was a human being and talked to addicts like human beings. And if anybody watches this, if you have like a, an addict in your life or you know addicts or want some way to help an addict, then I promise you the only thing that you need to do is just treat them like a human being. Because I promise you, they're not treated like one. You know, especially homeless or any, just not treated like human beings. Either society throws them aside or they're at a clinic that treats them like a check or a number from Medicaid, you know? Or they're in a, uh, a cell number, they're a number there, you name it, you know? Just ask them their name. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them if you can help them in some way. That's literally it, man, you know? 
And I got lucky because somebody decided to do those things, you know, and that's how, that's how I survived that concrete jungle they call Gamden, man. That's really how I did it, yeah. Wow, that's, that's powerful, man. That's, that's great, man. Yeah. Looking back on everything, what's the biggest lesson you learned? Wow, that's a loaded question. Biggest lesson I learned. For myself, the biggest lesson I learned is that sometimes there is no answer. Sometimes there is no deeper meaning. Sometimes it just is, just is, and we don't get to control that. We don't get to change some things. We don't get to make some things right, or we don't get to change outcomes, or we don't, sometimes we don't get to know that stuff. And the more we chase those things that we can't have, the more we put stock in things that we can't change or, or effort in the things we can't change, that void inside of you is gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger because that void is looking for an answer and sometimes there really is none. It's really a rat race. You really are chasing nothing. So I learned how to just sometimes be okay with being okay. Not every action you do is heroic. Not every plan you have is a master plan to change the world. Not every job you have is gonna be a life-making career. You know, sometimes just waking up and being okay is okay. That's okay. The lesson that I learned as a whole, the biggest one, the utmost biggest one is the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life. When it all comes down to it is just compassion and understanding. 100%. And you can call that love too and throw all that in there. But I found that 90% of problems that you or we all face, whether it be I don't know, politically or financially, who know anything, most of them can be solved with a lot of understanding and compassion. And that people deal with things or are going through things every day that, that you don't know or understand. And if we all took time to understand those things and the people around us, not only does the world become better, but we as ourselves become a lot better, you know? And I learned that time is the most important thing on the planet, man. So use that time to, to be understanding, compassionate, and help people, you know? 
Never try to drain something. Always try to give something, you know? Because at the end of the day, you don't get to take anything with it. You don't get you don't get anything when you die. It's just you, you know? You can be in a room full of people if you want, but when you die, it's just you, man. And you're gonna have to answer to yourself when you die. You know, was I a good person? Was I all that kind of stuff? And for the first time in my life, I can look in the mirror and go, yeah, when that day happens, I can look at myself and say, hey, I really tried, you know? All those things are important. And there's so many more lessons I learned, you know? But, but the biggest one, you know, it, is really to try to take care of people, you know? People keep getting separated and angrier and angrier and, you know, I would just really like to see people be more understanding and compassionate. I really would. And people should be more conscious of the time they have and that it's definitely fleeting. Because once you face death a couple times, you, you realize how limited your time really It's limited, man. So, you know, spend it... Uh, Spend it wisely, I guess. Yeah, those are some of the biggest ones I learned for sure. Sure, okay. And to kind of wrap it all up and bring it to a close, mm -hmm. now that you've you know, kind of made it to the other side, yeah. per se, uh, what are you most excited about for the future? Oh God, just the future. You know, it's as simple as that. That's what's great about it, you know? Um, I... I get something that a very, very small group of people get to have, right? I literally get to do it again, right? I had chose my path. I walked my path, right? That, that was it. That was the path I chose. I got to hit a reset button. A lot of people don't get to do that. A lot of my friends didn't get to do that. A lot of addicts I know don't get to do that. So I'm excited for literally every day, you know? And my life moving forward is brighter than it's ever been. It doesn't have that cloud hanging over it all the time, you know? And I'm just very lucky to have the people that I do in my life, you know? My wife is literally the, the reason I'm here. My wife is everything to me. And she's been the best lesson I've ever had in my life, really. <laughs> and um, I look forward to every day waking up, living, going to sleep, and doing it all over again, you know? Because I didn't have that before. You know, I didn't have that. And whatever life I had before, it, just the walking dead, you know. Now I get to actually live life. So, yeah, I think the future in general is, a, uh, is an exciting thing for me, for sure.
Well, Zach, thanks, man. Appreciate you sharing your story. No problem, man. <laughs> no problem. Glad I could help. <laughs>